Welcome to our show, Get Real Local in the Tennessee River Valley. I'm your host, Joe Harper. Every show, we will be talking with local people about the best places and things to do in the Tennessee Valley. Pull up a chair and explore more with us as we get real local. Welcome back to this week's episode of Getting Real Local in the Tennessee Valley. Today, I'm sitting in for our host, Joe Harper. This is Julie Graham. We will be talking with Bob Holliday, park manager at Johnsonville State Historic Park, located in New Johnsonville, Tennessee, along the shorelines of Kentucky Lake. Welcome, Bob. Glad to be here today. Bob, your park is designated as a historic park. Can you talk about that designation as opposed to just a standard um, state park? Sure. As Johnsonville is a state historic park, our focus is more on resource management, cultural and natural, as well as interpretation and telling the full stories of the, the site within its historical significance. So it makes our park different from, say, a, a Fall Creek Falls or a Harrison Bay or other parks like that, is that um, our park is more focused on um, the programming efforts. You're not going to find a lodge here or a golf course or um, those types of recreational opportunities that are very popular, dog parks and things like that. Um, instead, we take our energies and put them into going into a really deep dive of the, the research of our site to be able to flesh out um, the stories of the people and the land itself. Okay, so so how does that tie into the mission and how you set up programming? Well, with our park, um, part of the, the mission of Tennessee State Parks is to preserve, protect, and share the stories of Johnsonville. So with that, we preserve the site through our resource management efforts, um, everything from doing reconstruction work within cemeteries, identifying old home sites, um, improving areas of, of Civil War history that were destroyed by floods. We, um, we protect these sites as well so that they're, they're protected for perpetuity, which is our, our goal within Tennessee State Parks, that these resources are available for as long as we can make them available. And then we share these resources to actually make um, our park visitors aware that they existed in the first place and help them to understand the, the stories um, behind the resources themselves, as well as the people who once called Johnsonville home. Okay, great. So your park, I think the biggest interpretation is the Civil War. Can you tell the listeners about what happened there and then some of the programming that you do around that throughout the year? Sure. Now, with the Civil War history of Johnsonville, it the the thing that's so interesting and fascinating about the Civil War is that it's one continuous story. Uh, people it sometimes get really focused on, say, Shiloh or Stones River or Franklin or Gettysburg and that kind of thing. And really, they're all combined into one long story. And where our story picks up is that after the Federals had captured Fort Henry and Fort Donelson, and after they had captured Clarksville and Nashville, they now had a base in Nashville in 1862. And the Cumberland River was very low due to a drought. And the LNN Railroad, which was the only railroad available to bring supplies from the north, was under constant attack by Confederate raiders. So the Federals, they had Nashville, but they weren't sure that they could hold it. 
So they needed another way to move supplies into Nashville to support the campaign that was eventually going to capture Atlanta. And what their plan was, was to use an existing railroad line that ran from Kingston Springs, Tennessee to Nashville and extend it to the Tennessee River. There they would build a supply depot and then they would have um, steamboats and transports bring all kinds of um, supplies and food and medicine and cannons and anything that you might need if you're in the army in 1864, um, bring it up river to the site, which would be called Johnsonville. Then all that material is loaded onto railroad cars and then shipped 78 miles west to Nashville or east to Nashville. And then from there, the supplies went on to um, Chattanooga and to Atlanta. So the site came to be known as Johnsonville. Um, orders were given for its construction to begin in October of 1863. What's amazing is that the railroad and the supply depot were in operation by May of 1864. Within six months, they built a 90-acre supply depot and had a 78-mile line of railroad track operational. Now, one of the um, in May of 1864, Andrew Johnson rode one of the first trains to the supply depot site. And uh, the site is named for him. As a as legend goes, is that he rode this train. He arrived at Johnsonville. Um, he stepped off the train. He gave a flowery speech. A lady stepped out of nowhere and handed him a bottle of wine. He took the bottle of wine and broke it over some railroad ties. Proclaimed the site to be named Johnsonville, and never came back here ever again, as far as we know. So that's the the beginnings of the supply depot. So it took six months for it to get in operation. And it only ran for about six months. Um, between May and November of 1864, there were enough supplies that moved through the Johnsonville Depot that Sherman had more than enough supplies to um, capture Atlanta in the fall of 1864 and then make his march to the sea in um, November, December of 1864. Um, so then the Confederates well knew that Johnsonville was where Sherman was getting his supplies. So their plan was to try to um, knock out Sherman's Sherman supply base, and then maybe that would cause Sherman to have to leave Georgia. So that's where they sent uh, General Nathan Bedford Forrest with orders to attack the supply depot, capture it or destroy it, knock it out of operation. And that led to the Johnsonville campaign, which also led to the capture of um, the federal gunboat, the Undyne, which was the first time in American history that a United States naval vessel was captured by an enemy force, let alone a cavalry and artillery land-based force, um, and then led to the Battle of Johnsonville. November 4th of 1864 was unique in that the Battle of Johnsonville occurred across the Tennessee River. Primarily, it was an artillery duel between forest artillery and the guns of Johnsonville. Um, <clears throat> the, um, as the battle progressed, the federal gunboats were sunk, and the Federals were concerned that Forrest would find a way to cross the river. And if Forrest could find a way to cross the river, based on first-person accounts, uh, soldiers in Johnsonville were, were, they were anticipating another Fort Pillow incident. And they were very concerned about that to the point that they actually set their own transports and buildings on fire to prevent Forrest from having need or want to even cross the river. They didn't know Forrest didn't have any boats. He couldn't have crossed the river if he wanted to. Um, it can be said that the Federals caused more damage at Johnsonville than the Confederates did during the battle in November of 1864. Wow. 
So when you are doing interpretation, you do some programming, is my understanding. Is that correct? Throughout the year? That is. And um, we actually lead tours. Uh, different times of the year, we lead battlefield tours of the site of Johnsonville. And during those tours, we share some of those first-person accounts of the, the day of the Battle of Johnsonville. Um, one of those is from John Morton. So with the idea of this tour, is like we take people out to the site, because that's what really gives it meaning is to actually be standing in the place where the incident occurred, look around, take in the surroundings and go, oh, if I was here then, what kind of choice would I have made? I see why they were doing what they were doing, and so on and so forth. Um, so it gets it's more of a connection to the history. Um, so I have this quote from John Morton, who was the chief of artillery to General Nathan Bedford Forrest. And this gives you an idea, just a, a, a little bit of an idea of just how chaotic the Battle of Johnsonville truly was. He stated, at 2 p.m., the opening shot was fired by two guns opposite Johnsonville, and immediately the remaining nine guns followed with a deafening leaden salute. The gunboats in the fort returned with the fire with spirit and some damage. For 40 minutes, the cannonade continued with one unceasing roar. Now, on the Johnsonville side of the river, there was a young man about 17 years old. His name was Alfred Redfern. He was a messenger in the quartermaster's department. So he's a civilian employee at the supply depot. In his account, he wrote, shot and shell was dropping in all directions, and it just felt like hailstones. Well, I can't tell you how the shells did fly. They knocked the roof off the house I was in. Vicksburg or any other place was nothing compared to this. The shells whistling past my ears all the time kept it up for one hour. I can't hardly believe myself how I came to escape. Some of the shelves came within a foot of me. Wow. That's pretty dramatic. I think one of the interesting things that you said, too, was that these this battle was really across the Tennessee River. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it is. And then what happened is the original Johnsonville is now underwater. So talk a little bit about how that has impacted your park in terms of the land, what's still there, and the TVA building the dam in 1940. Okay. And, and really, overall with our park, one of our primary themes is that the Tennessee River brought life and death to Johnsonville. Because of the Tennessee River, the site was developed as a supply depot. People lived here. After the war, uh, the town grew up. Yet ultimately, because of the flooding of the river, the site ceased to exist as a, as a place for human habitation. So, yes, after the, the American Civil War, um, the railroad, which connected Johnsonville to Nashville, is extended across the Tennessee River. That allows rail service from Nashville onto Memphis, St. Louis, and so forth and so on. Um, in the, and it was also right after the Civil War, when you think about Reconstruction Tennessee, Johnsonville was the only place where you could get off of a steamboat, get onto a railroad car, and go to Nashville. So in the 1880s, 1900s, early 1900s, um, Johnsonville was a happening little town along the river. At one time, as many as 1,200 people called Johnsonville home. Um, so the town grows, there's a number of businesses, there's a peanut factory, which they brought, uh, peanuts used to be a, a, a huge agricultural crop in Humphreys County, Tennessee, and people would bring their peanuts to, uh, Johnsonville and there would actually be a plant where they would clean the peanuts and then send them off to market. 
And it was a unique place because it actually was one of the first locations in Humphreys County to employ women. Um, so you have different businesses like that. And all these different people, there's a, different schools. Johnsonville was a segregated community. So there was a, uh, a black section or a colored section of Johnsonville and also the white section of Johnsonville. So, yes, with the, the coming of <clears throat> Tennessee Valley Authority, um, which was to bring electricity, flood control, navigation uh, to the Tennessee River Valley, um, it can be said that Johnsonville paid a price for the progress that we enjoy today. So because of <clears throat> having flood control, navigation, electricity, and today the recreational components um, is that people had to give up their homes and families had to move. And Johnsonville is one of the largest towns along the Tennessee River um, that ceased to exist with the coming of the Tennessee Valley Authority. And it was because of the creation of Kentucky Lake in 1944. So if you can only imagine for a moment that you have your community, and in the South, especially rural areas, the church is the cornerstone of the community. People work, they get together, they go to church on Wednesday night. Um, you have a real tight group of people that you just know in your community. And imagine that someone from the government comes in and says, you have to move. All of you have to move and have to go away. How hard that would be on people. Uh, for the younger folks, yeah, they're going to make a new life somewhere. But for someone who spent their entire life in one location, maybe not leaving more than 20 miles from where they were born, just how heart-wrenching that would be. Um, and in fact, an ex example of that is that I had the opportunity to do an oral history interview um, with a gentleman. And um, he had come to the park. We talked for a while. We did an oral history interview. We went out. We looked at different different uh, places in the, in the park he was familiar with growing up. And um, whenever it was it was time for him to go, I offered him a, a map of, uh, of Johnsonville, something that that we had that showed the town era um, whenever he was actually living in Johnsonville. And this this man who's in his his 80s, he actually started to tear up and he said he, he refused the map. And he said, no, it hurts too much to think about what was taken away from us. And he just, he, he, it was too painful for him to want to hold on to those memories after he left the site. TVA has had an impact on a lot of communities, as you said, economic, positive, and uh, personal stories for many people. The dam was built in 1940, 1944, I think you said, um, but the park didn't become established till 1971. What moved the establishment of this park forward? Well, from the research that I've done is that from 1944, whenever everyone has to leave the area, and, and that's how the community of New Johnsonville came to be, is that people had to leave this area along the river. They moved to higher ground, formed a new community. So you have the community of New Johnsonville. Um, for a number of years, the site kind of sat vacant. And then um, the state acquired a portion of it um, to become part of Nathan Bedford Forest State Park as the Johnsonville State Historic Area. Um, and from what I have researched, that was sometime in the 1960s. So for about 20 years, nothing's happening here. In the 1960s, there's a local push that this history is important, it needs to be preserved. Um, the state acquires a portion of it. And then in um, the 1970s, 1971, is when there starts to be a push for the Johnsonville State Historic Area to become its own park, a separate standalone park. Um, and at that time, 
there was a very strong recreational focus within Tennessee State Parks as a whole. So people that have been coming to the park for years and years and years remember in the 1970s, there were basketball goals and there were all kinds of um, picnic shelters and playgrounds and uh, different recreational focused items like that. Uh, Many of those have been removed um, because they really didn't fit with our park story where they were placed. Um, So, yes, you move up through the um, 1970s to... It was 2013 when I started working for the state of Tennessee, and at that time um, was whenever we had just acquired our new, uh, it was then new, visitor center here at 90 Nelbeard Road. So our, our visitor center has a museum in it. It has exhibits um, that to share the stories of Johnsonville. And then we have plans in the park to place a picnic shelter, a restroom, and if we get support and funding, a thematic play area, something where children can play in the park on an area that is of it's not historically significant land. It actually used to be an old parking lot. Um, so with that thought, you might go to other parks and you see a playground. And the playground is a cookie cutter of every other playground you see everywhere else. That's not the kind of thing that maybe really should be at a historic park. Um, however, imagine, if you will, something where you go to and it's, it's all ADA accessible. And whenever you first arrive and get out of your car, the, the ground in front of you has a like a rubberized railroad track on it. And someone in a wheelchair, a young child, can go over that railroad track and go to a play piece that is ADA accessible. And it looks like a, uh, a train, like an 1880s train. And maybe there's something there that is like a spinner that represents a turntable. And then maybe there's... Um, some rocks that kids can climb on, those kinds of things, things that are thematic to our park story, yet they also encourage play and creativity and just being outside and enjoying um, the unique places that are Tennessee State Parks. Well, Bob, I love the the idea of, of a thematic playground and incorporating the story with this place. I think people want to understand um, special places and interpretation helps a lot with that, obviously. Um, but I want to, I want to mention one other thing with you today. I know you were recognized for a special project that you did for the African Methodist cemetery. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of this cemetery and how that ties also not to just the move, but maybe part of the civil war, um, system. I mean, the civil war activity that was going on. Sure. Uh, Yes. Within Johnsonville State Historic Park, there is an African Methodist Cemetery. Uh, This cemetery was um, the oldest graves that we've been able to identify go back to the uh, the 1860s. And we believe some of them may have been cholera victims. Um, There is some research to suggest that persons buried in the cemetery actually served as United States colored troops at Johnsonville during the American Civil War. The, uh, the cemetery has 108 graves in it that we know of based upon maps from the Tennessee Valley Authority. So, yes, uh, Tennessee Valley Authority, you can say they're loved, they're hated, that they can't be ignored. They did some, some really good things whenever they were building Kentucky Dam. And one of those is that they did an extensive um, survey of the cemeteries that, were, that may be impacted by the creation of Kentucky Lake. So really, it's only because of that research and map that uh, we were able to work to try to identify the graves. So um, you can imagine imagine a, a hillside 
that is a, a mound, um, and it's steeper than straight up, maybe about 100 feet tall. And that's where the site of the cemetery is. We don't know exactly why, except that that was the area that was available to the colored people of Johnsonville. Um, now, in 2013, when I started working at Tennessee State Parks and Johnsonville, I knew that there was a cemetery on the hill. I had no idea how many graves were there. And one day I was talking with um, an African-American uh, resident of Humphreys County, and we were talking about the park and this and that. And they said they really liked the park and such. But then they started talking about the cemeteries, and they wanted to know. They said, well, you have white cemeteries in it, like Crockett and Winfrey, and those cemeteries are really maintained and cleaned up and look nice. And then you have the African Methodist Cemetery, which is on a hill and covered up with briars and, and brush. And why is that? I didn't have a good answer for her. I had no answer for her. So when I became park manager in 2017, uh, that became a priority for me uh, from a resource management standpoint, is that, that, that the persons buried in that cemetery were within the um, perpetual care of the state of Tennessee and um, the sites where they're buried, um, we have a responsibility to, to maintain those, those locations and identify them and clean it up. So we had a lot of support from the community, from the Friends of Johnsonville State Historic Park. Um, we got some grants to the Friends of Tennessee State Parks. And uh, we've spent the last um, five or six years now cleaning up the hillside. We removed all the brush and saw briars. We worked with Tennessee Division of Archaeology to try to identify grave sites. Um, we've identified 100 and, um, 108, um, and there's more up there. And what we've done is that in each location where there's disturbed, so disturbed soil and where the map says that there's a grave site, we've taken a piece of PVC shelving like you buy at a Home Depot or Lowe's, cut it to look like a headstone, and then placed a number on it that corresponds to the map um, from the 1940s TVA survey. So um, that's what we've done to try to identify those sites. And it's been so interesting is that now that we've done this work to clean up the cemetery, people come to the park and they're, it's become one of the, the most visited spots in the park that people ask questions about. They want to know who's buried there, what's the history of it, and so on and so forth. I had one person ask me, "Is like, when did you put a cemetery on the hillside? <laughs> and um, I had to take the time to explain to them that that cemetery had been there since 1865 or so. We just finally took the responsibility to take care of it as it always should have been done. That is such a great story. Um, again, a lot of these lands, and I would agree, the TVA did do some cataloging and movement throughout the valley when places of towns went underwater. But that is just a great story. So congratulations on that. Bob, if a visitor was planning to come to your park, what would you tell them? Is, it a, is there a best time of the year to visit or a program if they were, say, a Civil War enthusiast that they just don't want to miss? Well, it can be said, and I've heard people tell me this, that our park is one of the best kept secrets in Tennessee State Parks. We are a day-use park. We're about an hour west of Nashville, and we're not nearly as busy as other parks. We've had visitors tell us that. It's like, we really like coming here because it's not overcrowded. Uh, we can always enjoy ourselves here. I've had a lot of people tell me, um, it's kind of ironic. They say that Johnsonville is one of the most, when they're in the park, they say this is one of the most peaceful places that I have ever been. 
which is so ironic considering all the violence in the history of Johnsonville from the Civil War um, to the um, segregation area era. Um, I've actually had someone tell me that um, back in the town era Johnsonville, the 1930s and 40s, that Johnsonville was once so violent, you had to fight your way into it and you had to fight your way out of it. Um, but yet today you can come and you can visit the site that was once home to people and today is home to the plants and animals of Tennessee. Um, really in terms of time of year, it, it varies a lot in terms of what you'd like to do. Um, this time of year is a great time to visit the park because the water is low. Kentucky Lake is at winter pool and it's a great time to get out and visit, um, the foundations of the old home sites and get a real sense of how Johnsville was once laid out before the flooding of the Tennessee river. During the summertime, we host um, paddle trips, ranger-led paddle trips, where we take visitors in kayaks and we paddle around to the areas of historic Johnsonville that today can only be visited by water. Uh, we also have our different Civil War programs that we offer. Now, every November, we host an anniversary event to commemorate uh, the history of the Battle of Johnsonville. So with that, uh, we host a living history program the first Saturday of November, um, we have uh, different living history stations that portray military and civilian elements of um, the supply depot and um, the Battle of Johnsonville as far as the, the federal troops that were stationed here. So uh, year round, there's an opportunity to enjoy your Tennessee state parks here at Johnsonville. Okay. And, and just let visitors know, if you don't care to, how they can find out when programming is happening. Sure. Um, to be honest, the best way to keep up with our program schedule is through Facebook. That's where we do most of our promotions um, that people are likely to see. Um, JSHP71 is our Facebook um, handle, and that's where we post different upcoming programs. Um, and then as well as our state parks, um, Johnsonville web, web page. That's where we post um, promotions for upcoming programs as well. Now, Bob, I should have asked also, you this episode. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, um, and as well, is also through our tourism partners. Um, visit HumphreysTN.com. Um, Karen Landers, Visit Humphreys, Love Big Shop Small. Um, we've got a lot of partnerships with Visit Humphreys over the past couple of years. And even more uh, following the 2021 Humphreys County flood. That, um, that following the flood, one of Karen's big pushes for Humphreys County was okay, we've had a bunch of businesses that are they're gone. We've had a populace that is gone that used to support these businesses. How are we going to support them? We can do that through tourism. We can do that um, through partnering with Johnsonville State Historic Park and um, offering programs. We'll try to get people coming into the area, spending money that helps to bump up the economy and bring some tax dollars into Humphreys County. Um, so that's where we've, we've been uh, partnering with Visit Humphreys for, for a while now and are and are very proud of that partnership opportunity. So, Bob, I should have asked you this up front. Tell the listeners what your background is. We can hear the passion in your voice and that historical um, theme running strong. Just give folks a little bit of background on yourself. Uh, certainly, yes. Um, so I grew up in Pennsylvania and uh, went to um, Albright College following high school, which is in Reading, Pennsylvania. And from there, I uh, got a four-year degree in um, history. Uh, during my college years, I did some internships at Living History Sites and found that I just really enjoyed the opportunity to teach 
um, history and share history and get people excited about history. And it didn't matter their ages or backgrounds. Um, there was a way to connect with them and connect them to stories of, of place and, and full stories of, of their area. So following college, I uh, moved to Kentucky and worked then at what was uh, TVA's Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Area, where I worked at the home place 1850, as it was known at the time, which is a living history farm on the Stewart County side of the um, National Recreation Area. So I worked there for about 12 years, uh, 10 of those as the lead interpreter, which would be the site manager. So I have an extensive background in uh, mid-19th century history, um, doing public programs for children, special events, um, families with children, leading tours. And it was through that experience working at Land Between the Lakes that I I really developed um, my skills as a presenter, as a researcher. And then um, in 2013, had the opportunity to um, become a park ranger uh, with Tennessee State Parks. And Bob, kind of tell the listeners, because we have listeners from all over, how land between the lakes is situated in terms of the two river systems. Right. Uh, tenants, the um, Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Area is a peninsula, which is in um, part of it's in Stewart County, Tennessee. So what makes it kind of unique is that on the west of the Land Between the Lakes is the Kentucky Lake, the impounded Tennessee River. And on the eastern side of Land Between the Lakes is um, Lake Barkley, which is the impounded Cumberland River. So historically, um, this area um, kind of grew up as somewhat isolated in a way because they they had the rivers around them. Um, but then, too, they had the river at the doorstep. So the, door, the rivers are bringing in steamboats just loaded down with whatever you can think of people might want. Um, Yet, based on some of the research that we've done, is that the people who lived between the rivers, especially in the late 1800s, early 1900s, is they didn't necessarily view themselves as Kentuckians or Tennesseans because that boundary line kind of moved now and then. They kind of viewed themselves as the people that lived between the rivers, and they're very happy and content until TVA came along, and then the happiness ended. There are a lot of good stories out of land between the lakes, and I would think you could tell um, visitors that if you are going up the river, you will see the land between the lakes on the, if you were heading north, I'd say the east side, and you would be on the west side. So kind of an there interesting is, geographic. There is, if, if I can share one story. Sure. Because this, this one has always stuck with me. And this story is documented. It's, it's on display in the Golden Pond Visitor Center. In Golden Pond, Kentucky, the, the center of Land Between the Lakes, and it, it really brings home how when Tennessee Valley Authority came to the people living between the rivers and made it known we're going to build this dam, you're going to be flooded out, you have to move. Um, the people who lived there kind of thought, okay, yeah, yeah, oh, all right, we'll, we'll consider that, and uh, we're going to name our price and we're going to set the bar and um, we're going to live like kings off of this money that TVA is going to um, give us for our properties. So the TVA enlisted the help of a local preacher who knew everyone in the community and knew all the, the different places. Um, and they told him what was going on. It's like, we're going to buy this land and that's it. And um, the preacher took the TVA man out and they visited all these different places. Then they had these, um, they had this big public meeting 
So at this big public meeting, the locals are getting together. People are slapping each other on the back, talking about how they're going to, um, you know, they're really going to take money from TVA for the land or this and that. And as the, it says in the, um, the, the display at Golden Pond, there are two ways to ring a church bell. The first way you ring a church bell is when there's good news. And it's just a real happy clapping of the church bell real fast and this and that. And the second clapping is whenever there's bad news, something bad is, has happened. That's a very slow, deliberate ringing of the church bell. So the TVA men were at this meeting. The preacher was at this meeting. He was sworn to secrecy. The public is just having a big time. And it was time to call the meeting. So the preacher went up and he pulled on the rope and he gave that very slow, deliberate ringing of the bell. And everyone stopped and stared at the TVA man in disbelief because they realized then what their future was going to be. That is, uh, again, TVA, the stories from one end of the valley to the other. Um, there's always a story of the people that were there and the sacrifices that were made to dam this river and to make it an economic engine and bring electricity. But there was always the story of the people that were displaced. Yeah. And actually there is, there is documentation here in Johnsonville that whenever people were told they had to move, that TVA did make an effort to work with the County Extension Service to have classes for people on, basically it's like, what happens next for you? Um, you know, they would meet at the church and they would have meetings for people in terms of sharing. It's like, okay, you know, it's, it's like, we're not just running you out of the town like rats, although that was a popular conception um, that there, there was efforts made to try to help relocate people. And actually in Land Between the Lakes, TVA did move um, houses and buildings that, um, that if, if someone wanted their house moved out of what was going to be claimed by TVA, um, that TVA did that. And then another piece too is the cemeteries. Uh, TVA had a responsibility to move um, graves and cemeteries that were going to be flooded. Now, if that actually happened or not, you can actually start a lively debate with people because TVA was supposed to do that. TVA hired a bunch of contractors. Some people say, you know, everybody along the Tennessee River was moved. Some others say in places the headstones were moved, yet the graves were left intact under the water. So the, tr the truth lies somewhere in between. <laughs> Bob, it has been great to visit with you today. And I, our listeners, I'm sure, appreciate learning more about Johnsonville State Historic Park. So thank you. You're very welcome. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. If you want to know more about this story or more about the Valley Watershed, visit the website at exploretrv.com. Join us next time with more local stories from the Valley. A big thank you to our sponsor, Tennessee Valley Authority. Thanks for stopping in to listen today. If you have a great story and want to learn more, follow us on exploretrv.com. That's exploretrv.com.